Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Chit Heads. My guest today is Leslie Kamenoff. Leslie Kamenoff is a yoga educator inspired by the tradition of TKV Desikachar. He is an internationally recognized specialist with 36 years experience in the fields of yoga and breath anatomy. He leads anatomy and yoga methodology workshops for many of the leading yoga associations, schools, and training programs in the world. Leslie's book, Yoga Anatomy, co-authored with Amy Matthews, has been printed 12 times and has sold over 300,000 copies. Leslie's the founder of The Breathing Project, a nonprofit educational corporation dedicated to the teaching of individualized breath-centered yoga practice and education. The Breathing Project currently teaches classes and advanced training programs out of its studio in New York City. From October to June, Leslie can be found teaching his highly respected year-long courses in yoga anatomy at The Breathing Project in New York City. His courses are also available online to a worldwide audience at yogaanatomy.net. So hello, Leslie. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, thanks for inviting me. Just a couple of quick factual things on the intro. Yes. Uh, 37 years teaching. Oh, amazing. Far, that's, yeah, far more than 12 um, printings of, of the book as we're in the second edition now and over uh, half a million copies in print by this time. Plus, um, as of uh, now, which is August 2016, uh, there is uh, exactly one year left to the program's uh, that we teach at The Breathing Project because we are closing the studio uh, this time next year. Oh, you are? You're clothing, clothing, closing the studio. Why is that? Uh, a lot of reasons. Um, you know, part of it is uh, paying Manhattan rent. Yes. The yeah. ever-escalating Manhattan rent, but also that uh, Amy Matthews and I really have been uh, doing a lot more traveling and teaching uh, in recent years. Um, mm. And uh, we want to do more of that and do it differently, meaning that, you know, not having to run back to New York for uh, Wednesdays, in my case, and Thursdays, in her case, to teach our courses there. So, you know, it kind of breaks up our travel schedule in a way that uh, keeps us from doing longer programs or longer tours or things like that. Plus, for me, I want to have uh, more time to write. Uh, I'm starting to work on another book. Um, uh, so basically, it, it was time. It, it will have been 13 years when we uh, closed the studio. And um, we've had a really, really good run. And yeah. We, we announced the decision last fall to let everyone know way in advance, and uh, uh, that's what we're doing. Wow. Well, um, everyone will, in New York will be sad to see you go because the Breathing Project really is an institution in the city. Mm. And, um, and so for anybody listening who does have access to New York City, lives close by, you know, take advantage of, of uh, taking the final courses before they close next year. Um, well, th it, thank you for that. Actually, the one person who won't be sad to see us go is our landlord, because he's going <laughs> to jack the rent way up once we leave. Ah, I see. <laughs> well, okay. So, you know, one thing, you know, having 37 years experience in 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 yoga in New York City, especially because mm -hmm. you have been here all 37 years, is that correct? Uh, ex except for a three and a half year stint in uh, Los Angeles in the early 80s, oh, when okay. I was still working with the Shivananda organization. I was transferred out there and spring of 81 to run their Los Angeles community. Uh, and uh, after I left Shivananda, I stayed on in L.A. for a few more years, few more years started, did a lot of work in sports medicine, and, and basically came back to New York after the Summer Olympics were over in 84. 
Oh, I so see. other than that, I've been pretty much based in New York City my whole life. Well, you really have seen then, you know, in those 37 years, a, a radical transformation. I mean, the, really the dawning of what might be called a yoga scene and then the evolution and the transformation of that scene into into the kind of popular um, fitness-focused yoga scene that we, you know, have today. So I'm sure you have a lot of opinions on that. So I would love, so I'd love to hear kind of your own, you know, personal narrative, how you got into the practice and then, and, you know, and then weaving into that story, your own kind of thoughts about, you know, this shifting milieu of the yoga scene? Sure. Well, that's, that's a pretty open-ended question. Um, <laughs> well, you've been, first of all, you've been using the term yoga scene, and it's always been a scene. It, the, the real transition, I think, is when it became an industry. Ah, yes. uh, and, and when the word industry started getting applied to it. Yeah. And, and for my personal history, having mentioned my time in L.A., um, I got to see the uh, the precursor to that because um, there was a, a fitness scene uh, mm -hmm. always in, in various places and in, in, in various ways in the world. But uh, it was in the early 80s and, and in large part centered around some of the things I was involved in in Southern California that it actually became an industry. You know, you, you had the the running movement that was coming to a peak, uh, group fitness took off like an absolute rocket because of Jane Fonda. Right. Um, you had uh, the invention of Nautilus, which made it safe for people to use weights uh, in a weight room. Mm. Prior to that, you know, all you had were pulleys and free weights, which are not that safe for beginners. Um, and, you know, you had the Olympics coming in 84. So all of that was coming to a head when I was out there. And and, and you began to hear this this phrase, fitness industry, mm. uh, along with a, a lot of demand for instructors um, and a rush to provide those instructors. And the training was, you know, originally maybe not so thorough or, uh, or detailed um, or safe. Uh, so, you know, eventually uh, trade organizations sprung up that uh, certified um, uh, training standards and, and so on. And, and so you can see how this was, you know, 10 years in advance of all of these exact same uh, issues coming to the fore in what we now call the yoga industry. And um, I did have a unique opportunity to uh, participate in the creation of the 200 and 500 hour standards that we now use uh, with the Alliance um, for the yoga industry. Mm -hmm. So that, that was something I was kind of positioned to take part in uh, right at the beginning. And it, it was interesting seeing, you know, my world, the yoga world, going through pretty much the same sorts of changes and responding to the same market forces that fitness had done 10 years prior. Hmm. So what was the kind of situation then that inspired the Dawn of Yoga Alliance? I mean, what was kind of the state of yoga at that time in general? Um, okay, so we're talking about uh, sort of uh, early to mid-90s um, being that time when you started to hear the term yoga industry. Right. Um, and it was in the mid-90s that this conversation really started heating up. At that time, I had been serving for a while as vice president of a group called Unity in Yoga. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. Yes. Um, and, and we were the ones who were putting on conferences before... Uh, yoga Journal got into that business. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the last conference that, that Unity Yoga put on was 94. The first one Yoga Journal put on was 95. Mm. Um, and at, at, in that transitional period of the conference production, 
at these conferences, this conversation started coming up amongst senior teachers and folks who are out there uh, bringing yoga into all sorts of different environments, uh, not just in, into the fitness industry and, and gyms and clubs and things like that, but also more medical environments. So a good example of that was the Ornish program, um, which I think everyone knows about now uh, for uh, preventing and treating heart disease. And a very large component of it is uh, a yoga, meditation, relaxation, lifestyle. And, and, the, and, and the two two people who actually designed the yoga component of that, uh, Nishala Devi and uh, Yanni Chapman, were friends of, and colleagues of mine from Unity and Yoga. And um, they were reporting back to us that, you know, they would roll into a town or a facility, a hospital, whatever, that was installing basically installing the, the Ornish program. And, and their question would be, okay, now who are, are the local yoga teachers in our community who can come in and, and teach that component of, of the Ornish program? Mm. And they're like, I don't know, look in the yellow pages, uh, you know, look at the back of yoga journal. Uh, there was no centralized listing. There was no standard for training. And, and so they were dealing with the world of uh, accreditation and licensing and standards and regulation and all of that. And, and so this conversation arose uh, within, uh, you know, the yoga community. Some of the senior teachers who show up for these conferences like, you know what, if, if we don't set some kind of standards for our trainings, there was a fear that it would be imposed from the outside by, by, by someone else, you know. So there was, a, there was a certain fear element of, like, if we don't get our act together, someone's going to do it for us and we may not like it. I see. Um, so fear and, and there was a certain amount of loathing as well, to stick with that line of thought. And the loathing part came in, uh, and a good example of that would be what uh, Beth Shaw was doing with Yoga Fit. Mm. Um, because uh, I, I talked about how in the fitness industry there there was, you know, the need for instructors outstripped the supply at a certain point. Yeah. People jumped into that uh, opening in the market to provide it, uh, and the standards came later. Well, Beth did exactly the same thing with yoga, uh, keying off of the fitness industry. You know, she was like, hey, you know, we need more yoga instructors at these health clubs. And we already have people in these health clubs who know how to run group fitness. They're called aerobics teachers. And, you know, we can give them a weekend training that will allow them after this weekend to go and teach a yoga class. And that's how Yoga Fit was born. Mm. And, and so um, you can imagine the reaction of that to some of the more senior people who had been, you know, training in their entire lives to teach yoga and were training other people to teach yoga in certainly more than a weekend. Um, so there was a certain, you know, we've got to, we've got to stop yoga fit from doing this sentiment as well. That's the loathing part. You know, it's like, we don't know how many hours it should be. What we do know for certain is that a weekend is not enough. Yeah. So those kinds of conversations were, were happening in the, in the mid nineties and resulted in the formation of what's now known as the ad hoc committee. Um, I took part in uh, the last couple of meetings where the standards were actually uh, settled upon the, you know, and the number of hours in, in each topic and, um, the interesting thing, which intersects with my personal history, is that when the decision was made, which I didn't agree with, by the way, to form an organization that would administer these these standards, um, what became available was Unity and Yoga's uh, 
501c3 because it had become inactive. It wasn't producing conferences anymore. So basically, Unity and Yoga is the Yoga Alliance. Mm. Uh, it did a name change and, and simply kept the same uh, legal uh, infrastructure and uh, became the Alliance. So I got to resign from both of those. <laughs> so that's interesting. It's interesting to hear you say, and I'm, I'm actually kind of, it's refreshing to hear you say that you said you, you, you didn't actually agree with the choice to to develop an institution that administered these standards because I feel like there's a the, the the general criticism of Yoga Alliance is that it seems to be in an accreditation accreditation in in, in name only and that really oh. like the accountability and the quality of the of the standards the quality of many of the of the yoga schools is really not that it hasn't been heightened simply because uh -huh. it has Yoga Alliance attached to it. In fact, you know, I've I've done applications for Yoga Yoga Alliance schools twice, right. and I and I think the programs I did them for are, are are definitely of quality. But I could see in in my own application process how easy it would be to simply you know write something down. Yeah. And then, and then put out a really bad, bad product. So sure. you know where you know what is 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 the Yoga Alliance really just kind of an institution in name only that we're kind of giving money to to do something that nobody really knows what what it is. <laughs> well, actually, okay. Um, when we talk about the the alliance in the, in this way, we have to distinguish a couple of things from each other. Okay, because okay. you can't lump everything into the conversation now about the alliance like we used to. Sure. Okay. Because number one, the alliance used to be just one thing, and it was the registry. Okay. Uh, and it, it was doing a pretty shitty job at that. Right. Um, and uh, it was just uh, not being responsible to its its membership. Uh, in, in some major, major ways. So we have to talk about the alliance for, uh, in, in one sense, you know, from when it started up until when Richard Carpell became the president, uh, because it was just a, a, just a continuous decline in accountability and functionality and, and, and basic uh, uh, acceptance by, you know, most of the people who, who were looking at it critically. Um, when Richard came on, he uh, did a very good job of, of seeing what the problems were, reaching out to actively mend fences. He, he called me for a three-hour conversation to introduce himself, and he did that with a lot of people that had been highly critical of the alliance and basically agreed with our criticism. Mm. Um, and, and shortly after that, the alliance became two things. Okay, It was the 501c3, which is the registry, but then they created a c5 which can actually lobby and do uh, advocacy work. Oh, okay. uh, when you're a C3, that particular nonprofit structure prevents you from really doing any meaningful lobbying as a trade association. I see. Um, and so that's when the alliance became these two things. And I think a lot of people still don't realize that. And, and once they had the C5 in place and they could do some active work, then they had to come up with what their actual policy was regarding things like regulation. Are we for it? Are we against it? And and in my view, they made the right choice to decide that they were against it. And they've ever since been doing a very good job uh, going, you know, state by state by state, um, playing this game of legislative whack-a-mole whenever a state wants to start um, regulating yoga teacher training programs as vocational training, they go in there with their resources, with their community organizing, they go right to the state legislature, and they have, in every instance that I know of, managed to keep that from happening. Now, you know, here in New York, without really the help of the Alliance, because this is 
back in the more of the dysfunctional days of the alliance, we're talking about 09, um, you know, the New York teachers organ self-organized uh, un under the, the uh, guidance of uh, Allison West mm. at Yoga Union um, and uh, managed to go to the legislature and get it quashed. The same thing happened shortly thereafter in Virginia, where, where there was a legal battle brewing. But, you know, there was a concerted, organized effort on a state-by-state -state basis for these regulatory, these secondary uh, education uh, regulating uh, agencies to bring yoga in under their purview. And uh, as far as I know, every state where that's tried that, it, it's been um, reversed, uh, either reversed or not enacted. Uh, Texas was enacted, then it was reversed later. So. You know, my wow. criticisms of the alliance at this point may be confined to the registry or not so much their policy in terms of the lobbying, but maybe how they're communicating or how they're, you know, uh, enacting some of these things. But, but fundamentally, you know, um, it may seem like I've gone over to the alliance from having been a very strong critic to actually supporting them. But in essence, they've come over to me because I haven't changed my view from the beginning. Well, and I think what you're saying, which is really refreshing, and thank you for clarifying that, is that what you're, I, I think that what you're rightly pointing out is that generally the perception of Yoga Alliance by many people that don't understand what you're explaining is that, that, it, that it's, a, it's, a, it's a regulative organization and nobody wants to have, you know, regulation over their yoga Well, the alliance, the alliance doesn't regulate anything. Right. They administer a registry. Right, right. You know, regulation is something only the government can do because okay. regulation implies the ability to enforce right. the regulations. And the only entity that actually wields that kind of force is the government. And right. that's that's what we want to keep out of yoga. Yes, exactly. And, you're, and what you're saying is that actually Yoga Alliance has been protecting us against that kind of regula regulation. Yes. Wow. Yes. So that's refreshing to know. Good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. So let's move um, into um, more of what your kind of you know the the spirit of much of your work is, which is anatomy. You've written this mm -hmm. this very seminal text for all yoga teacher trainings, yoga anatomy. I think I haven't seen it not included on any yoga teacher training list. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, what is um, you know what led you into this deep study of anatomy? How did your practice move into this really deep study of anatomy? And then I would love to kind of hear, you know, what you think are some maybe pervasive misunderstandings about the breath and the body that you've, you know, hmm. sort of come to realize through this work. Well, you love these big, wide, open-ended questions. Oh, yes. Yes, I do. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so to take the first part of it, what led me to anatomy was curiosity. Uh, it wasn't any kind of formal education of, of any sort. In fact, I, I've had very little of that. Uh, I, I barely got out of high school, actually, through an alternative program that was available at the high school I was attending. Mm. You know, this is the 70s. They were experimenting with things like, you know, well, can we give these kids credit for, I don't know, uh, tree climbing or something, um, just to keep them, you know, dropped out, but in school dropped out. And, and I kind of graduated from a program like that. Mm. Uh, so I've always been an autodidact. I, I've never not been educating myself. It's just that I don't function well in other people's structured learning environments. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. W which makes it all the more ironic that, you know, I started what eventually turned into uh, a structured learning environment um, <laughs> at the Breathing Project. So I was always curious. And 
I got involved in yoga in 1978 when I was 20. Uh, my dad invited me to a class. Uh, oh, he wow. had started to take yoga. He had a sort of a midlife crisis. He was turning his life around, and yoga was part of it. So he invited me to take a class at a, a place that's still here in New York called the Shivananda Yoga Center on 24th Street and had my first class there. And after my first Shavasana and the first time I ever actually intentionally, consciously, effectively relaxed my body, um, I was hooked. And so I took a beginner's course and signed up uh, that next summer, which would have been 1979, which is why it's 37 years, because it's 2016. Right. Uh, I signed up for my teacher's training course in the summer of 79 and um, very quickly uh, began uh, teaching at the Shivananda Center and within some of the teacher training programs that they were doing. Um, I also became somewhat a use of a useful person to them because I had a background in, in theater, uh, stage production type of things. You know, I stage managed a festival that summer of 79 that they were doing up there and okay. got similar jobs at, at, at other locations. You know, it's a worldwide organization. You know, I eventually ended up going to, um, to India uh, in January of 81 mm. to help with a teacher training program at their ashram in, in Kerala and in South India. Uh, and that's where I became a Swami. I took my vows there of sannyas. Uh, actually, it was shortly after that that I got shipped up to Los Angeles. Um, they don't like to keep swamis in their hometown, you know, too many attachments. Right. Um, so uh, when I was in L.A., I was teaching a lot of classes uh, every day at the at the center there and seeing a lot of students and a lot of bodies and, and seeing a lot of differences and began wondering, you know, why can certain people do some poses easily and not some other poses and, you know, and, and how can we help them? You know, is this something structural? Is this something in their nervous system? Is it the way they're breathing? Um, is it the way they're thinking? You know, so I'm trying. I'm filtering all of these observations through my uh, training and understanding as a yoga teacher. I'm thinking not just in terms of, you know, muscles and bones and ligaments and tendons, but also in terms of the koshas. You know, the is it is it on an energetic level? Is it on an emotional level? You know, mm -hmm. so where are the obstructions? What is preventing people from doing these postures so easily? So right away, I was sort of in that framework of uh, trying to understand where the obstructions were uh, in people's systems that kept them from doing the, these 12 basic postures. And the thing that, that was easy for me at that point in terms of class structure was that in Shivananda, it's pretty much always the same. You're seeing all these different bodies doing pretty much the same sequence of poses every class you teach. So it was a very fertile ground for making those kinds of observations. You know, um, and uh, and that turned into this thing that I that I say to this day about asana, you know, that yoga isn't really about doing the asanas; it's about undoing what's in the way of the asanas. Right. Um, but you have to discover at what level the undoing needs to occur. Uh, so that's what led me into being curious about anatomy in terms of the bones and the muscles and where things attach. And, you know, I, I remember having all these aha moments when I started picking up anatomy books. It's like, oh, that's why I'm seeing this thing over and over again in class, because this thing is attached here and not there. And it crosses this thing and that joint's involved. And, you know, so there was all of these sort of light bulbs going off just from reading anatomy books because I had already gotten that backlog of observational information just from teaching all these hundreds of students in these classes. So that's that's where I was when I left Shivananda and started working at a place called the International Sports Medicine Institute in, in West L.A. Uh, this would have been 1982, the fall of 82. 
uh, and I began seeing some world-class bodies as well as some people in, uh, you know, a lot worse shape who were coming in with back pain and all of that. But what I got to see for all of them was their x-rays because the doctor I worked for had this protocol where everyone who walked in the door as a patient got these full spine uh, front and side x-rays. And, and so I got to see a lot of spines. Mm. And I got to be very scared about teaching yoga. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know that feeling? Did you get that feeling in your gut when you read uh, Broad's article, you know, how yoga can wreck your body and how we were killing 400 people a year with shoulder stand and plow? Remember that? Yes, I do, and I and I, I did. I get that feeling, as in I was terrified that I was that I was yeah. wrecking people's bodies. Yeah. I, I I guess my initial reaction to it was that it was an extremist article, and I just I just I always shy away from extreme <laughs> statements like that. So actually, that's a really good segue. I would love to hear what you t- what you think about that article. Yeah. Um, but you know that feeling, like, could it be true? That, oh yeah. Could, because you see, the thing about I tell this all the time to the teachers that I that I teach to when I'm when I'm doing my workshops is like we have a vastly overinflated sense of our own safety and efficacy for the simple reason that the critical feedback that we so desperately need to be safer and more effective walks out the door and never comes back. Yeah. You know, yeah. people have a lot easier time delivering praise than criticism in general and in particular to people in authority at the front of a room. Yes. And, and we need to know that as teachers. Yeah. We need to know that we are not getting really important information that will make us safer Absolutely. in what we do. And, and so that's a really important consideration. So, yes, on some level, we must know that when, when you know, because the doubt does arise yeah. when you read something like what Broad wrote. And I agree with you that it was sensationalist. And I'm saying that specifically because I know that he loathes that term. Um, I've seen him, I've seen him react violently to it. Um, but yeah, he and I don't get along anyway. Um, uh, but you know, there is that doubt, like, could it be true? Yeah. Because could someone have walked out of my class and like drop dead the next day or that night, you know, you wouldn't know, you just simply wouldn't know. So it plays on that. It plays on fear to a certain extent, but it plays to a valid concern from another perspective. You know? Well, I think I think you know, uh, as, as, because your students do come to you with a profound amount of trust, and I think actually a lot of students have a kind of unrealistic expectation that their yoga teachers know more than many of them do. Mm. And then, and then from a teaching perspective, you know, no matter how much knowledge I accumulate or acquire about mm. the human body and m- wisdom I understand about how all of the different aspects of our anatomy and our physiology work together, I, I think I'll, I'll never reach a place where I feel like I, you know, uh, that, I, that I know everything. And so there's always, there always no, will be that doubt. Yeah. No, you won't. And yeah. neither will anyone else because no one ever could. You see, I think that's exactly. the point. You know, and, and, and listen, I don't, I don't want to blow my business model here, <laughs> but let me let you in on something. You know, you don't need to know a whole lot of anatomy to be a really good, safe, effective yoga teacher. Right. You know, I mean, we always have this thing in our head, like I need to know more anatomy and, you know, to be safer and all of that. But that's that's really not true, mm. you know, um, because we're not, after all, being trained to be doctors or physical therapists or biomechanicists or or anything like that. You know, so what do you need then to be in a, a really effective yoga teacher? You need to you need to have a willingness to open your eyes, to open your heart and to be with somebody in a way 
that helps them to focus on what's going right in their systems rather than what's gone wrong. Mm. You know, and, and to me, that's the primary quality. And, and in essence, the, the, the main therapeutic uh, benefit that we can offer people you know, uh, when they come to us for, for, for help of some kind, because yeah. they may have seen all these specialists who, who know a sh shitload more anatomy than I'll ever know, you know, in their fields for whatever it is that's gone wrong with their bodies. But whose job is it to help them focus on what's still going right? And on balance, if the person is still breathing, if they can still move, if they are still conscious, there is a lot more going right than has ever or could go wrong in their mm -hmm. system, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that's prana and that's what we work with and, and that's what we help to put people in touch with. And it, you don't have to be an anatomical expert or a yogic genius to ask someone to raise their arms over their head as they inhale and lower them down as they exhale. Yeah. You give them something really simple and perhaps for them unprecedented to do that brings their body, mind and breath together. And, and that to me, is the beginning of yoga. And if you can, you know, if you can breathe, if you can move, and if you can focus, you can do yoga. That's, that's amazing. So, so actually, what you just said was a really great segue into something I wanted to talk about, because you mentioned in, um, uh, you mentioned sort of in, the, in, the, in, our, in our email correspondence mm. that anatomy is a story that's told with a sharp instrument. And, yes. and, so, so, and so when you're talking about prana, when mm. we look at Western anatomy, there's, there's no prana, right? There's no prana in, uh, at, the, at the heel of that blade, so to speak. So how, how are we, uh, you know, what, what is different? about your approach to anatomy, given that you've come to anatomy from this more subtle mm. anatomical perspective, this more like Eastern perspective? Hmm. Okay. Well, that's actually a good specific question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> first of all, the, the tale told with a sharp instrument is a simple rendering of the word anatomy itself. Anatomy mm. means to cut up or to mm. cut into, you know, yeah. uh, it comes from the Greek and a, a tome is a sharp instrument. And, um, so it, it means to like to go into the system in an incisive way, which you can do with your consciousness, mm. which you can do with your mind. And so that's, that's more of the sort of Eastern, uh, subtle, when people talk about subtle anatomy, that's the instrument they're talking about. Yeah. And, and, and that is what enlivens the system. The more you go into the system using your consciousness as the penetrating instrument, the more alive it gets. And, and as you rightly said, at the outset of the question was the more you go in with a, a, a sharp instrument like a scalpel, the less prana you'll find. Yeah. You know, um, now surgeons do that all the time on live bodies. And that's, you know, an enormous benefit that we can do that. But they study how to do that usually on dead bodies first. Right. You know, and I've, I've done that as well. I've done a, 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 a number of, of cadaver dissections with my friend uh, Gil Headley mm -hmm. studying what he calls integral anatomy. You know, so even the way you use the sharp instrument on a dead body will give different stories. You know, you can go down through the layers, holding the blade basically perpendicular to the tissue to penetrate down to the thing you want to see, tossing everything away that's above it, you know, uh, or you can hold the blade parallel to the surface and, and look at the layers, which is more what Gill does, you know, and, and Tom Myers, for example, as well with, you know, the, um, the, uh, anatomy trains, myofascial meridians. So, you know, even, even using a scalpel can give a more or less lively story, depending on whether you're looking for the interconnectedness yeah. of all of the layers within 
and between themselves, or you're looking for parts and pieces. Right. You know, and which a surgeon has to do. You know, to remove something, you have to turn it into a part first because there are no parts in the body. There's only parts after you put a sharp instrument between one tissue and another. But the story of Western anatomy, if I and I and I actually talked about this a little bit in an interview mm. I had with Zach Dasick, that that generally oh, Zach, yeah. yeah, Zach's the one who introduced me to Tom in the first place. Oh yeah, Tom's and we brought great. him to the Breathing Project, and that's when he started teaching in New York. Oh, amazing! Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I've watched a couple of his online workshops. He's incredible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so yeah. What one of the interesting things that I you know heard or what he talked about when we had our conversation was that um, that. That yeah, the the story of Western anatomy has been a story of this kind of piecemeal approach to the body, mm. whereas um, you know the work that you're doing and Tom's doing and Zach's doing is really a more integrated approach, that in a certain sense has to kind of transcend that story, right? I mean, it has to move beyond it to really discover things like fascia and and other modes of really understanding how these things work together in a holistic way. Sure. Well, the first thing we have to do is to acknowledge that. It's a story. Right. And that any model or system that we come up with about the body is a story. Right. And it is a map. And the, the question is, is this particular map useful for the journey you want to take? Mm -hmm. You know, like if, if, I, if I want to take a walk around New York City and see all the architectural landmarks, okay, the subway map will be of limited use. It'll tell me how to get where I want to go, but it won't tell me where the landmarks are or exactly. who the architect was or what style the building was built in. You know, uh, If I have a topographical map, however detailed it is, of a hike I want to take, you know, I can't lay it on the floor, walk on it, and say that I've been to the territory. Right. You know, if I have a treasure map, <laughs> right... You know, you see, think of all the different kinds of maps you can have and all the different kinds of journeys you would take. Yeah. Um, but in the end, you need to be in the actual territory that the map got you to and helped you navigate. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't just lay it on the floor and walk on it, regardless of what kind of map it is. So they're all stories. They're all maps. But the map is not the territory. Exactly. And, and the real question is, is the story useful? Mm -hmm. Does it help? I mean, when you're doing therapeutic work like I do in the yoga and the bodywork field, the real question is, is this story helping to reduce dukkha? Is it helping to reduce suffering, mm -hmm. you know, for, the, for this person in this moment? You know, and, and that, that usually is about helping them find their story or find that part of their su suffering it's because of a story that they don't realize is a story that they're mistaking for reality. Mm. So, so recognizing that anatomy is a story helps us see all the stories we tell ourselves. Uh, and, and we can't avoid it. It's not like it's bad. The, the question is, again, is it useful? And when you use the map metaphor, it, it becomes pretty clear. Yeah, yeah, you know, it really does. Uh, so when I think also what's helpful about seeing all of these things as stories and as and maps is that, you know, people have a hard time sort of understanding the utility of, for example, the subtle body map because, mm. because they have normalized or naturalized the the Western anatomical map and, and mm. story. And they and they mm. can't and they don't understand that it's serving a particular utility and that the subtle body anatomy is serving another kind of utility. Sure, but I wouldn't make a distinction between the two. You know, what, what is subtle other than your ability to introspect mm -hmm. and, and receive the information that's being generated by 
by your anatomy. You know, mm -hmm. uh, this is why it's been so wonderful all these years working with Amy Matthews, because aside from being a certified movement analyst and, you know, all the other things that she does and the anatomical genius that that um, I believe she is, you know, she also uh, teaches uh, body-mind centering. She works very closely with Bonnie Bainbridge-Cohen, who uh, was a developer of body-mind centering and does a lot of teaching alongside with and sometimes for Bonnie. And, um, you know, in, in body-mind centering, basically you... You take the, the body and its different systems as a, a, a map to go in and have an experience, you know? Like, mm. can I experience the qualities, the mind, if you will, of my skeletal system right now? Mm -hmm. You know, what does it feel like when I put my, my consciousness in my muscles or my lymph or my endocrine system or my organs or my fluids, you know, or my nervous system, mm. right? And, and so you don't really need a map of chakras and nadis or anything to, to, to have a starting point for having a very, very deep and profound experience of yourself, uh, 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 of an embodied experience, experience of yourself. Because you can take that journey that I just mentioned in any of those systems, picking up a regular anatomy book. You don't mm -hmm. need to look at a chakra. But do you think that 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 um, that the chakras and the nadis uh, were, in your in your view, serving the same kind of an experience in the sense of going inward in order to sort of feel out these particular um, hmm. regions of the anatomy, or do you think it was serving? Do you see it as serving another purpose? I well, mean, I think initially they became reports back from the field, right? You know, yeah, like exactly. if you think of the original um, explorers who sailed the seas and, and found, you know, the continents and the coastlines and all of that, you know, they, they, they came back and gave their best approximation of what they saw, mm -hmm. you know. And um, I, I think the chakras and the nadis are basically like that. You know, at a certain point, however, because of the beauty of, of, of these maps, they start either supplanting or, or in some cases, generating the experience for people. Right, right. You know, the, the, the tail starts wagging the proverbial dog in that sense. And, and we become so enamored of, of the, the promise of the experiences that these original explorers had that, that we actually superimpose uh, their maps on our experience and, and start generating them ourselves out of our own imagination, our own vikalpa, if you will, mm -hmm. you know, and, and so we're, we're at the breathing project and Amy and I, we don't agree on everything, but there's certain things we do agree on. And, and that is that, you know, it's far more powerful to engage a student in an inquiry than to administer a cue or a correction or give them uh, an idea of what they should be feeling right. <laughs> in a pose, you know? Right. And, you know, and by the way, that's where some of my recent comments have been misconstrued. You know, I said something on Facebook that got blown way out of proportion and I didn't bother to explain it because I didn't feel like it. Um, <laughs> that, you know, like people were talking about how it's very big now to, to do trauma sensitive yes. training, mm -hmm. you know, and to uh, see I'm giving you your segue right there. Yeah, there you go. Um, <laughs> to, because, you know. You look at the numbers and the percentages and, and the odds of having someone in your group class that has experienced trauma in their life, and it's pretty high. Yeah. You know, so how can we adjust our teaching style or our language to be trauma sensitive to these folks? And the reason I said something like, I hope I never have to take a trauma sensitive training was for the simple fact that 
Good teaching pedagogy is, by definition, trauma-sensitive. Right. You know, I've, I've looked into the material of people that, that specialize in trauma-sensitive yoga training and seen all the teaching points that they make about what to say, what not to say, how to touch, when to touch, when not to touch, how to have the room and all of this. And it's like, we've been doing this at the Breathing Project for ages, simply because we've we've been in this deep inquiry about what is the, the best, most effective pedagogy to use, the method of teaching hmm. that enables people to have their own experience on their own terms and not be spoon-fed something by a teacher, you know? How do you engage students in their own inquiry? You don't tell them what they should be feeling. You invite them to do this. And if it doesn't work, you can do that. You can have your eyes open. You can have your eyes closed. You, you know, you ask permission to touch. You All of these things, that's just good teaching. Right. So, you know, when I made that flippant remark about it, yeah, I've never taken a trauma-sensitive training and I hope I never have to, that's what I was saying. Yeah. If I'm a good teacher, <laughs> I, I shouldn't have to. Right. So. Well, this yeah. is, yeah, and this is, um, this is a good, uh, I'm glad you're segueing into this conversation because it was actually where I wanted to move next. And, yeah. and so, you know, as you've been studying now for decades, that the body and the breath are conditioned by, you know, mm. certain traumas and history mm. and historical context and sociopolitical mm. position, what have you. So in, in this kind of milieu and in, in this way that we are intersected by a variety of, you know, determining factors, what is the role of free will? I mean, what is, oh. do we have free will when we are determined by all of these different um, experiences and things outside us and inside us? Mm. Well, that's a really big conversation. Mm -hmm. And that's a very deeply philosophical conversation. And that's a topic that I have been engaged in, in a deep uh in, and in many cases, devastating inquiry for many, many years, mm -hmm. you know, um, and have come up with some uh, useful answers uh, for myself. Um, but number one, this is an inquiry that a person needs to be interested in engaging in for themselves right. instead of absorbing the answers that are given to them by all of the factors that you mentioned. Yeah. Um, you, you managed to, without naming them, hit on a lot of uh, these sort of acad academicized ideas like intersectionality and, yeah. you know, all of that <laughs> in, in, your, in your intro to the question. And there, there are people that have a vested interest in promoting the, the academic answers to these things, which, which frankly... Uh, if you trace them back, come out of the the philosophy departments of universities, yeah, um, and the sociology departments, and, yes, 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 and so on. And you know, I, that's really not, in my view, where to find answers to such vital, important uh, questions. You know, um, I looked in all sorts of places. You know, and and, and initially. Uh, I was deeply involved in the study of, uh, you know, Eastern spirituality and philosophy. And, you know, I showed up to my first seminar with Desikachar with no less than two different translation and commentaries of the Brahma Sutras sitting prominently in front of me so that he could be sure to see that I had them. 
Yeah, I was such an asshole. Um, you know, I was trying to make a point that I was worthy of being his student and blah, blah, blah. And it was to his everlasting credit that he never really, uh, <laughs> you know, related to me based on the way I was presenting, thankfully. Um, but later on, when I became closer to him and, and, you know, got to really work on some of this, he modeled this thing that I was saying earlier about handing the inquiry back to the student, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I was struggling mightily with these, with these questions. Um, most particularly during the month I spent living in India and, uh, going and seeing him every day. And, you know, we weren't doing asana. He handed me off to his wife for the asana part. You know, we were talking, we were doing philosophy work mm -hmm. and, you know, these were really, really important questions to me. And, it had to do with the nature of consciousness, you know, from an Eastern perspective and from a yogic perspective in particular. I was having a real problem with the Purusha Prakriti thing. Yeah, me too. Um, because this is a dualist view, yeah. you know, which is at the root of yoga uh, metaphysics, which mm -hmm. it borrows from Sankhya, which is, by the way, uh, not in agreement with Vedanta, which exactly. Desikachar was very fond of pointing out to yeah. people. You know, he, he would often quote, you know, the, 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 there's a specific passage in the Vedanta Sutras that refute yoga because they've refuted Sankhya. Yeah. You know, and, um, and, and I got hung up on the idea of buddhi. Now, buddhi was for me this very confusing principle, and it seemed like a jerry-rigged workaround <laughs> to the fundamental problem of Purusha and Prakriti. You know, uh, Purusha is consciousness, but it's unconditioned, eternal, unchanging, you know, mm -hmm. um, ever apart, yeah. right? And, and, and then you have Prakriti, which is exactly everything that Purusha is not. It is mutable, it's changing, it's, it's temporal, um, and, you know, it's dynamic, whereas Purusha is passive, right? Mm -hmm. And so you have these two principles and they're supposed to have a relationship. Yeah. And exactly and precisely because of how they are defined as not possessing any qualities that the other possesses, by definition, they're incapable of having a relationship. Yeah. And thus the concept of buddhi arises. It's somehow this interface between Purusha and Prakriti. And I, this was just confusing the hell out of me. <laughs> and so, you know, I take this to death. By the way, you know, I was reading at his suggestion a treatment of the six darshanas at the time by mm -hmm. Professor Haryana, which is just impenetrable. There's a certain <laughs> style of Indian scholarship when they're writing about these things, which is just so convoluted. Really? You know, yeah, it, it makes Matthew Ramsky seem like Basho by comparison, <laughs> you know, seriously. What's the, what's the author's name again? I want to write it professor, down. Professor Hiriana. It was just, it was, it was, a, it was an overview of the six darshanas that he okay. recommended to me. Okay. So I'm reading that, but I made the mistake of reading it alongside, because I needed breaks, you know, alongside uh, Ayn Rand's uh, introduction to objectivist epistemology. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> Right. Now, this is a recipe for insanity, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and so, but she, she did some really important original work on the theory of concepts 
mm-hmm. you know, in the in that work, you know, completing basically Aristotle's view, mm. which is the anti-Platonic view. Right. And and the Purusha Prakriti thing is actually a Platonic view. Mm, you know, yes. where you have the, and, and it, it it goes to Kant who who had the phenomenal and the noumenal and all of this stuff, right? So, you know, you can see the, the struggle in philosophy uh, as this eternal battle between Plato and Aristotle from a certain perspective. Yeah. So here I am, you know, having this raging, you know, epistemological war in my own head. And so I take all this confusion desic char with the simple question about Buddha, what's the deal? You know, Buddhi, sorry, Buddhi, what's the deal? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't understand it. And he said, and I, I laid it out pretty much the way I did to you. You know, they can't, they can't have a relationship. Uh, and and so the first thing he said to me was, you know, that's a good question. <laughs> you know, maybe it's the question, but that's a good question. He said, and no one's come up with a good answer to it yet. And I'm like, what? <laughs> no, no, wait, your father, you, Patanjali, Buddha, Shankaracharya, you know, <laughs> like. No one, no one, you know, this is what I'm thinking. I'm not just blurting all this out of my head. I was very reserved around Deskachar, yeah. but this is what's going on in my head. And I, and, but then he, the next thing he said was, well, if this question is important to you, then I would say, what does your experience tell you about this question? And, and he phrased it very carefully. He didn't say, what do you think? I already told him what I thought I was fucking confused, you know? But he said, what does your experience tell you about this question? Yeah. And so in my head, again, not out my mouth, I'm going like, who the hell am I to have an opinion about this? You know, yeah. I'm just, you know, if Buddha and Shankaracharya couldn't figure it out, you know. But then it occurred to me that what he was really saying was that, listen, if this is an important thing for you and you're confused about it, who are you not to have an opinion about it? You know, and base it on your experience. And so that led me into this, a couple of things. Number one, it serves as a, as a role model for me as a teacher, that the way he handled me in that moment was to hand the inquiry back to the student, as I've been saying, you know, yeah. that, that's sort of the template for the pedagogy that I've been describing, that I try to model with the people I teach. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing it led me to was this inquiry about, okay, what is my experience? My experience is I have, I have a body and a mind. Right? I have consciousness and I have a body. And they clearly have a relationship. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, there's no question about that. So I, I have to start this inquiry from that experience. And so if that's the starting point, then this consciousness that I know that I have, what is its nature? You know, what is its nature? And is it a prior existent to everything else? Or is it an attribute of something that exists? Right. Because there's this, this whole primacy of consciousness yeah. view that the ultimate existent is a consciousness of some kind, Brahman or God or whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. and from that evolves the material universe. But the other view is that existence exists. It's here. It's eternal. It's always been here. Okay? And certain existence within it, certain entities that exist, possess an attribute right. that we recognize as it's consciousness. Like an, an emergent property rather exactly. than being the original property. Yes. And if it is a property, what, what is its nature? Mm-hmm. Right. And so 
then, and, and by the way, there's another quote from Ayn Rand that's very useful in this conversation, which I love. It's like, you know, a, a body without a soul is a corpse. Yeah. A soul without a body is a ghost. <laughs> a human being is not a relationship between a ghost and a corpse. Mm. And, and that's, by the way, the Vedantins dig on the dualistic nature of Sankhya and yoga. You know, the, 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 the image of the, the blind man who can walk carrying on his shoulders the sighted man who is lame. That's, that's the refutation of that dualistic uh, uh, view of the human that, that evolves out of Sankhya and yoga, right? So it's, it's sort of a restatement of that, that um, characterization. So, so then, upon deeper inquiry, what I've come to realize about my consciousness, because that's the only one I really have access to. Yeah. You know, and, and that, was a, that was a big realization all in itself. You know, it's like, whoa, wait a minute. Am I, am I spending a lot of my energy really worrying way too much about what's going on in other people's heads? Right, right, which so many people are plagued by, that worry. Yeah, yeah, yeah well, they're, they're, because it's a lack of taking responsibility for what's going on in the one head you have access to, which is your own. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I spent a lot of time in this head of mine and examining how my consciousness works. And at its root, what I've come up with is this. And this is essentially in agreement with what I was reading in the um, epistemology, is that we have this consciousness and its nature is volitional in the sense that the fundamental choice that we have is whether to focus it on some aspect of reality or not. You see, because you have to compare it to a, a, a theoretical different kind of consciousness. For example, God. God is omniscient, all right? That's the way God is described, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. If, it, if, if, if a God lacks any of those qualities, it's not God, right? Mm -hmm. So an omniscient God has a different kind of consciousness, can be aware of everything there is to be aware of all at once, doesn't need to focus, Yeah. right? We are not God. We don't do that. We have to focus. And whether I focus on this or focus on that is a choice. Whether I focus or unfocus my mind is a choice. And this is where it gets tricky. The choice to unfocus your mind is a choice. You see, so what we don't have a choice about is needing to make that choice, because that's the nature of our consciousness. The nature of the human consciousness we possess, it being volitional, forces us to make the choice, even if that choice is to unfocus. And what happens to an unfocused consciousness? It drifts. Mm -hmm. It drifts from this to that, and it just absorbs uncritically anything it's presented with, and somehow, through the workings of our subconscious, assemble some set of values, beliefs, uh, you know, a view of the world, which we need. You cannot function, you cannot survive in any kind of human or even semi-human way unless you've done that. The question is, do your beliefs, do your concepts, do your uh, values in any way correspond to reality. And if you're drifting most of the time, there's a pretty good chance that they don't. But if you make that, and, and you've made that choice to drift, you've made that choice to unfocus. If you make the choice to focus, then you can keep asking yourself, 
you know, are my actions having the results that I wanted? Are my choices ending up the way they, I wanted them to? Are my values corresponding to my observations about how reality works? And that can only happen if, if you make the sometimes incredibly difficult choice to focus. And this is, this is where the trauma thing gets very, very tricky because for people that are, that are subjected to severe trauma, quite often the thing that helps them to survive that without being destroyed is to unfocus, right? Mm -hmm. But it's also possible that you could go into hyper-focus, which also happens, okay? I have some good friends who were subjected to horrible, horrible, like, stuff you can't even imagine things when they were young, who turned out to be magnificent human beings. I know some other people that had every advantage. <laughs> They've had every kind of support that a human being could possibly want, emotional, financial, everything, and they're complete assholes, <laughs> right? Yeah. Right, so the, the real question is, what kind of choices have we made in the face of the things that we didn't choose or could not have chosen? The nature and the nurture of it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So it's often presented as nature versus nurture. Mm -hmm. And that, and, 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 you know, what is more responsible for how we turn out? And I say that's a false alternative. I say it's nature and nurture. What they have in common is neither of them have we chosen. We didn't choose our genetics, and we didn't choose how people treated us when we were young, okay? In Versus how we respond, the choices we made, which, by the way, by the nature of our consciousness, consciousness, we can't avoid making, even if it's the choice to unfocus. So this is this is the place I sit. This is the place I stand after years and years of this inquiry. Um, and that's why, you know, certain things come out of my mouth when I hear about someone that has you know, chosen to move, move through the hierarchy of Jiva Mukti, right, as, mm -hmm. a, as a senior teacher and ends up, you know, making regrettable choices uh, concerning personal boundaries. Yeah. It's not just a reactive, misogynistic, white privileged, severely neurotypical. What else have I been accused of being? <laughs> neurotypical? Uh, You've been accused of being neurotypical? Oh, extreme. <laughs> extreme neurotypical privilege. <laughs> Don't you read Remsky? Jesus. <laughs> extreme neuro... That was... That wasn't... That was Remsky quoting someone else. Anyway... Well, yes. I don't think I've ever heard the word neurotypical before, but I, I'm definitely going to look that up after this interview. Oh, it's um, a thing. It's a thing. And, you know, it, it renders you incapable, by the way, of having a valid opinion yeah. about things that aren't so typical well, for people. Well, I, mean, I mean, this is, the, this is, this is what happens when, when, um, uh, when a lot of these uh, conversations happen is that when you, once, you've get, when, once you've been labeled as, mm, yeah. as privileged, yeah. you no longer have a voice. Um, sure, so, I, can't, I, can't, I can't talk about race because I'm white. Yeah. You yeah. know, so it, basically I can't talk about other people's brains because mine isn't broken. Right. So, yeah. yeah. So, so, so I guess the response to, to, cause I hear what you're saying and I, and thank you for going on that incredible, like philosophical journey. And I love that kind of stuff. It's like totally where my heart's at. So thank you for talking about mm. all of those um, different concepts and how they all fit together and how they've informed what you, uh, how you stand on this issue. Um, 
So, so then I guess the response would be, and I, and I hear what you're saying is the choice that we have is then to focus and unfocus. Mm. And I guess within, within the context of the Jiva Mukti thing, the mm. response might be, well, yes, but the, but what, she, what was available to her yeah. as what she could and could not focus on was narrow, narrowly circumscribed. And this would be the, you know, the situation with, you know, somebody who is, for example, you know, grows up in a very poor home in Alabama, has sure. very limited access to resources. Like they, 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 they do have this, this, this free will to choose, to, to focus or unfocus on what's available to them, but what's available to them is very narrow. So then, so then, mm-hmm. so then sure. what's then, so then what is then the, the, the faculty or the, or what leads us then to move toward maybe a more expansive set of options from which to choose? Because I think that's really what, that's really what for a lot of people in this, in this stake, in this conversation, that's what the stakes are is that, for example, Holly Farrow is that, you know, because she was so kind of, um, I was hoping was... to avoid using names, but go ahead. Okay, sorry. I've already I've already called out Ramsky, so we might yeah, as well we might as well. I mean, I think everybody yeah. knows what we're talking about. Um, yeah. uh, uh, is that 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 the, the trauma is was so it, it informs her so much that it's become hmm. it's completely saturated the 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 range of choices that she has, and I think that's kind of where some of these people are coming from, and that okay. and that and that sure. it's the responsibility of institutions to then to then to then be sensitive to that. Well, absolutely. Well, let me just stop you right there. Okay, first of all, I haven't, I have probably not said enough about how um, execrable I find, found the atmosphere of Jiva Mukti even way back to the 90s when I decided not to teach there anymore. I see. Okay, and I have, I am on record about that. Mm. Okay, I saw the way it was going at its foundations. Mm. Okay, back when they started their first teacher training program, started laying down all these rules of what you needed to do to prove you were loyal to them. Okay, so that's when I left. Yeah. Right. Um, and and so you know, some people found it surprising that Michelle Goldberg decided to talk to me because I haven't taught there for over 20 years about Jiva Mukti, and she talked to other people. I was the only schmuck who was willing to go on record. You know, mm-hmm. so that was a lesson for me. It's like, by the way, is anyone else in this article going on record? Am I the only one? These are good <laughs> questions to ask if you're being interviewed for something that people are actually going to read. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, in no way should anything I've said about this situation or free will or anything be interpreted as uh, a, a lack of criticism for what goes on at a place like Jiva Mukti and the actions of the specific people involved. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that, and that, that, and it comes from the top, Right. you know, now David and Sharon have been friends of mine forever. Okay. And I've, I've known them and I've seen them build what they've built. And we know that we don't agree on some really fundamental things. Okay. Right. You know, uh, like, you know, when, when my explicit mission is to demystify yoga and theirs is to remystify it, you know, that goes to some pretty fundamental uh, divergence there. Do they, do they actually say that they want to remystify yoga? They've been saying that since the beginning. Oh, wow. Yeah. I've been, I, 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 I put that out there, you know, it's... Yeah, I, think uh, I have read yeah, that, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and I don't think they're going to disagree with that at this point, um, you know, and which is ironic, Really, just go back to history a little bit, because in their in in their fundamental <laughs> desire to remystify yoga, okay, um, they also brought Patabi Joyce to New York 
for the first time in ever, and you know, this is like 93, uh, and started people getting involved in this very athletic form of yoga that ended up, you know, re-energizing, you know, the, the, the yoga scene and putting it into the health clubs and turning it into a workout. So, you know, to a certain extent, what you see going on today in Instagram can be traced back to some of the things that they were doing. Oh, definitely, yeah. You know, so there's an irony there. But that's just an historical thing, you know. They, they weren't in control of the fact that health clubs, you know, turned Ashtanga into a workout. Right. But, um, you know, the, the, this, this, the situation at a place like Jiva Mukti, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I am anti-guru, I am anti-organization, I am anti any of these power structures right. that that end up, by definition, being uh, insensitive and abusive because the people within them have a vested interest in in continuing the structure. It's that simple, for whatever reason, you know. And you know, look, we can go into possibly the traumatized history of Sharon and David and Ruth and everyone else there. Right. Who who you know was on the other side of the the equation and and you know doing what they were doing and then covering it up and and, and all of that you know so so this desire to point fingers and assign responsibility you know I can understand it and we you know we should have guidelines we should have ethical guidelines you know mm-hmm. the question is who who has the right to enforce them right yeah and and that's a tricky issue. Yeah. Um, we, we, we need to also understand, and I'm on record with this too, of what ethical guidelines do energetically to a teacher and students in the highly energized and in many cases sensualized and in some cases sexualized environment yeah. of a yoga class, okay? There is a very, um, it's, it's, it's sexy to transgress the rules. Yeah. It happens in all kinds of professions all the time. You hear about it. Professions that are licensed and have, you know, uh, accountability to, you know, ethical boards and committees and things like that, far more uh, regulated and structured than the yoga world. You know, why would, why would a shrink, knowing what they know, having the training they have and the supervision that they're required to have, sleep with a patient. Yeah, yeah. It happens all the time. There is something that needs to be understood when you're laying down a, a rule or an ethical guideline. Part of the education about that isn't just don't do this. It's like this is what happens to human psychology when you say don't do this. Yeah. Be aware of that. Yeah. You know, boundaries in nature are permeable, mm-hmm. okay? Like in a cell membrane. You know, they're there to keep certain things out, to keep certain things in, but they have to let things out and in or else the cell dies. It's the same with any kind of living entity or system. You know, you can't just say, no, 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 don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. It's wrong without <laughs> having the other conversation. So you're, so what you're, so are you drawing attention to the fact that by, by, creating systems of no or putting systems of no in place, you actually cultivate the desire to infringe on those rules? Is that kind of what you're drawing attention to? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, and, but that's psychology. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. That's how, that's how people work. But to, to 
on the one hand, be an advocate for the psychological health of the students and not take into account the psychological uh, state of the teachers being subjected to these guidelines is irresponsible. Yeah. You know, yeah. plus, and here's another thing, you know, that, you know, there, there's the people who are in favor of standing up for the traumatized population and this and that. And, and I am too. I'm in favor of having teaching environments where everyone, anyone, regardless of the history, can come in and be safe and be educated and not be abused, you know? Yeah. Okay. Um, however, considering that there's a strong feminist um, element to this advocacy, okay, here's something that I've kind of noticed, and it's subtle, and I don't know if anyone else has picked up on this, but... Quite often, it's, it's cast in the male-female dynamic. Yeah. And that brings in all of the sort of paternalistic kinds of things that have happened all through history and the power imbalances that exist everywhere, not just in the yoga room, right? Yeah. And, and so you're, you're, you're saying that, um, the, that women have this, this burden of being powerless to deal with mm -hmm. from the get-go, and men have this situation of having power. But aren't you asking, with these ethical guidelines, for the men to be more powerful in their ability to overcome their conditioning than the women? Mm. And isn't that an anti-feminist view? Aren't you saying that men have more ability and should have, therefore have more responsibility, or their should have more responsibility and therefore must muster the ability to overcome their cultural conditioning than the women in these situations. I'm going to get slammed for this. I just know it. This is, I, this, I, just see, I just see the next screed coming out saying what an asshole I am for saying what I just said. But it's a question. I don't have the answer to it, but it's occurred to me that there's a subtle buying into the powerlessness of women in this call for the men to protect them. Now, they're, they, but then the counter-argument, which you know, I can give, is that, okay, it's not a male-female thing. This is a teacher-student thing, mm -hmm. right? Because you know, the thing about the case with Ruth that confused it is that the abusing party was a woman, Yeah. right? And I, 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 I have a sneaking suspicion that a lot of the vitriol that got sent in my direction was because you know, if Ruth were a man, it would have been much easier to make her the villain in yeah. this narrative. Yeah. You know, there, I was the, the, the most convenient person with a penis that, would, that, that had something to do with all of this. Yeah. Right? And so, you know, there's, there's, there's another side to all of this is, is what I'm saying. Because you can come back and say, no, it's a teacher-student thing. Whether it's a male teacher and a female student, or a female student and a female teacher, or a female student and a male teacher, you know, teacher-student is a thing that needs to be acknowledged and respected and protected. And I agree 100%. But let's pull all those other political narratives out of that conversation, the whole feminist thing and whatever else you're going to hear on a university campus, right? And just look at teachers and students and human beings and how their brains operate and how we respond to and react to being told what we should and should not be doing. Mm. You know, let's bring a little more psychological savvy to this conversation and just not make it a political 
battlefield because that's what it's become and it's it's boring it's yeah. it's it's really it's you know this conversation has been going on ad nauseum and it's destroyed the atmosphere on university campuses and it's put people on witch hunts in the yoga community you know and uh, as you described it earlier in our previous conversation, it's like there's a pitchfork-wielding crowd willing to gather behind these these various points of view uh, who are just looking to find villains to throw their bile at. And I have been that person recently, and it is not fun. No, no, I imagine it wouldn't be. Yeah, it's not. But it's also not fun for me to keep my mouth shut. No, and you know. I, you know, I, I appreciate I appreciate you sharing your your viewpoints. It will be interesting to see. Yeah. Uh, it will be interesting to see what people think. Um, but well, I, but it's I, predictable. Unfortunately, it's very predictable what people are going to think. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. But no, I think that you're right. I think that uh, drawing attention to the subtleties of the issue around, and and I mean, I don't want to. I don't. I would. I would never say that the the feminist viewpoint ha- doesn't have legitimate concerns. But I think that you're right, and that in the in 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 the conversation, sometimes there is kind of there's an uh, there's there's an imbalance in mm. or, or 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 a contradiction actually is what I think that yeah. you're, you're referring to in 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 the belief of empowerment, but from us from but that that ends up turning around and disempowering um, mm-hmm. uh, the the woman in the in the very kind of in the very argument. So I think that you're right to point sure. that out, but it's interesting. But there's also a certain amount of empowerment in our society. Uh, in in declaring yourself a victim, mm-hmm. and and that, you know, if that's not part of this conversation, uh, it, it should be. Yeah, you know, because if you can demonstrate that you've been victimized by whoever it is has been deemed to to be holding the power, then you've got a legitimate beef, and you can you can actually suppress any kind of protest against your stance simply by pointing out, you know, the. Uh, advantage that that you know your opponent has whether because they're male or white or rich or you know any of those things that have become easy easy villains in the narrative mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah i'm i i well two out of three ain't bad for me <laughs> All right. Well, this has been such a great conversation, Leslie. I feel like we've we've covered a lot of territory, and and it's going to be really interesting for people to give it a listen, and mm. and maybe we'll get a conversation going on a ver- wide variety of topics. Hopefully, not <laughs> just the ones that cause a little bit of blood to boil. Um, a little bit of blood to boil. I had a workshop canceled in Portland because of it. I know. I know. I saw that. I thought that what what a shame that was. I'm sure that was kind of uh, a, a little disheartening for you. Well, you know what? I got another gig in Portland. I'm going back later this month. Oh, great. Wonderful. Yeah. You're going in a different studio, though, yeah? A very different studio, absolutely. Um, And also, the the body stuff, Just I I don't want to forget, we've just worked out the details for this program that's coming up in April. It's called called Beyond Anatomy, a Mm. somatic symposium. And uh, it's going to be uh, a wonderful event that we're putting on at the Breathing Project here in New York. It's in the future myself, Amy Matthews, uh, Peter Blackaby Mm. is coming over from England, who wrote this amazing book called uh, Intelligent Yoga. And Brooke Thomas is going to be the uh, sort of presenter, um, uh, narrator, and discussant uh, amongst all of us. Wow. Um, So so what is this going to be again? 
it's going to be the first weekend of April uh, next year. Oh, excellent. Uh, okay. And people can just go to the Breathing Project website to get info as soon as we get it up there. Okay, perfect. I'll put that in the show notes as well so people can check that out. Awesome. Um, and then is there are there any other uh, things coming up you'd like to share with the audience or any hmm. um, the websites? I know we mentioned yogaanatomy.net, thebreathingproject.net. Org. org and then is there any any other place people can find uh what's going on with you sure my personal website is yogaanatomy.org. okay yogaanatomy.net. yeah dot net concerns the online courses that we've put up which uh have been just really uh just wonderfully um accepted by people around the world we have you know several thousand people around the world enrolled in these courses in over 40 countries so uh that's Amazing. the dot net stuff that we're doing and that 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 to me shows a big part of the future of this kind of education is, is taking it into places it could never get to yeah, exactly. uh, using using the internet and the digital world. So we're, we're having fun creating things that can be delivered that way. And in many ways, it's, it's, it's a richer experience than even being live in the room with someone, because just try putting the pause button on me when I'm live in the room. It doesn't work. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> All right. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Leslie, for your time and for chatting with me about so many interesting topics. Um, and I'll look forward to talking to you soon. It's been a pleasure. It's been really nice being able to dive deep into some of the philosophy. I really don't get to do that as often as I'd like. Yeah, it's a really fun stuff. All right. Okay. I'll talk to you soon, Leslie. Take care now. Bye. Well, that was our interview with Leslie Kamenoff. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to hear more about Leslie and his teachings, go to yogaanatomy.net, and you can also check out The Breathing Project, which is in its final year, at breathingproject.org.